0: Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup. My name is Andy Lemasogo.
1: And I'm Tiffa Mohapi. And if
0: you're a regular on the show, you'll know that we usually round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. But for the next four weeks, we're taking a break. So we're not actually here. <laughs>
1: But we kind of here. So here's to hoping that you're enjoying the festive break and listening to this podcast from the comfort of some exotic beach somewhere with a cold drink in hand and the waves lapping at your feet.
0: And you better have free Wi-Fi. Otherwise, just ditch the place, okay?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we've made sure that over the next four weeks, in place of our regular programming, we'll be sharing exclusive content from the annual Roundup 2015 event we hosted at the Wondrous Club in Johannesburg last month, November 2015.
0: Yep, the event was powered by the good people at Opera Africa, who are totally all about helping us all do more. With over a quarter of their 350 million or so users globally being in Africa, Opera is committed to making sure the continent is not left behind as the next billion people are brought online. And so they're doing this by investing in various important ventures that seek to grow infrastructure, improve affordability, and fund educational initiatives. Now, for more on those specifics, visit opera.com. In case you're
1: wondering what the annual roundup was all about, it was about getting all the thought leaders and experts around technology and digital industries to come share the trends that they observed during the year of 2015 and give us a glimpse of their forecast for 2016 trends to look out for.
0: Sorry for you if you missed it. Good news, though. This week, we kick things off by sharing an interactive discussion around tech and enterprise that therefore facilitated, featuring Senior Investment Executive at RMI Holdings and former co-founder of the hugely successful fintech startup Time, Dominique Collet antolik as well as CEO and founding partner of Convergence Partners, Brandon Doyle. And because of their background, the conversation did lean towards fintech issues, but a lot of ground was covered uh, across a number of different areas that involve tech and in enterprise, so you don't want to miss that.
1: Also, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, head over to africantechroundup.com to catch up on what you've been missing on, loads of information in our previous episodes and do yourself a favor sign up to our weekly newsletter as well and you'll get the podcast sent straight to your inbox every Monday
2: morning
0: Also for fun behind the scenes stuff and daily news bites uh, as well as candid commentary, that uh, we'll be sharing throughout the festive break. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram Our handle on both platforms is at African Roundup Of course we're on Facebook, who wouldn't be? Check us out at facebook.com slash African Tech Roundup
1: One last thing before we roll the tape from the annual roundups enterprise panel. We need to announce the winners of last week's competition for the two times Google Cardboards courtesy of Google South Africa. But alas, nobody's won them.
0: Nobody's won them because you guys couldn't get two basic questions right. The first one being how much does MTN now need to pay the Nigerian Communications Commission after they reduce the fine they imposed by 35%. That fine was initially 5.2 billion US dollars, uh, and we asked you what the revised amount was. The answer?
1: The answer is 3.4 billion.
0: Well, nobody got that right. And uh, the second question is, how much Nasperus is looking to raise to fund its expansion plans by floating 17.1 million ordinary shares?
1: No one got that right either.
0: Well, instead of announcing the winners, we'll just sort of roll the tape. You guys are so Whack.
1: (laughs) No, you guys are good. Just try next time.
0: All right, well, try next time. We'll probably hang on to those and, uh, you know, give us a good reason to give them to you. Or if you have some idea of why you th- you think uh, you deserve one, let us know. Well, then, with all that said and without any further ado, we're going to roll the tape on our conversation with Dominique Collette-Antelik and Brandon Doyle. Here you go.
1: So I'm going to start with some quick-fire questions. So just to test if you're still awake and... Still on top of things and if you haven't whined down your brains as well. So I'll start with you, Dominique. I'll mm-hmm. just point and I'll alternate as we go along. Blockchain or central banks? Sorry? Blockchain or central banks? Blockchain. Okay. Blockchain. Software as a service or software licenses?
3: As a service.
4: Software as a service.
1: Joburg or Cape Town? Be careful how you answer this one.
4: Definitely Joburg. Cape Town. Oh. You better have bodyguards here.
1: Fiber to the home or ADSL?
4: Fiber to the home.
1: Fiber. Open source software or proprietary software?
4: Definitely open source. Agreed. Tricky question coming up next.
1: Netbank or FNB? FNB.
4: <laughs> FNB.
1: <laughs> FNB. Okay. Interesting. Cool things. Interesting. Interesting. Twitter or Facebook? Twitter. But you're not on Twitter.
3: Well, I am as a corporate.
4: Can I say both?
1: Unfair, but cool. (laughs) A round of applause for them. Dominique, I'll start with you and just to give us an intro, but also just, you know, we've been hearing about blockchain like we just spoke now and Bitcoin. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of articles. There's Mm -hmm. everybody writing reports. And looking around the continent, only thing I can find in terms of innovation has been around in, uh, remittance services. What's happened that we perhaps are not aware of around trends around blockchain and Bitcoin? And what do you see going forward in 2016?
4: So it's actually interesting. For me, 2015 has been the year of Bitcoin and of blockchain. And it's actually been interesting because this is the year that financial services have actually started to pay attention to it. What's really interesting is how regulators have started to engage with it. I mean, three weeks ago, I attended a session with the South African Reserve Bank and the Financial Intelligence and Crime um, Authority. So, I mean, who would have thought that would start happening? And what's been interesting to see is that all of the big global investment banks have all set up blockchain innovation labs to start actually understanding the power of blockchain and what they can use it for. So, in Africa, what's actually interesting is that the use case started for remittances. So, if you look at companies like BitPesa, which is one of the most successful blockchain businesses on the continent, they started with a remittance use case and they've actually pivoted into a trading platform. So what they've actually seen is that it's a very difficult use case to get right for remittances. So they're actually seeing it as an alternative FX trading desk.
1: Interesting. Could you give us a bit more light on the trading platform that they've pivoted to?
4: So what they've actually found, what, what they're able to do with it is they're able to facilitate businesses. So they're actually able to help businesses facilitate forex, trans, um, forex transactions. Using Bitcoin using Bitcoin. So what they actually do is that they're not using Bitcoin as a currency. So really what they're doing is, so, for example, if you have a business in the US that needs to make payments to their subsidiary in in Kenya, it's a lot easier for them to do the transfer in the US from US dollars to Bitcoin and then for Bitcoin back to shillings because it takes nanoseconds And it's a couple of basis points as opposed to a couple of percentages.
1: Do they avoid fees in that process, if I may ask?
4: Yeah, because it's a couple of basis points as opposed to percentages. And it's also a couple of minutes as opposed to a couple of days.
1: So, in your views, obviously, are we going to see more of that happening? Yeah, definitely. Banks like RMB, FNB, taking that up?
4: It's actually interesting. So, what we've seen in South Africa this year is that all of the big banks have started to engage on the topic of blockchain. So, we know for a fact that Standard Bank has got teams actively working on Bitcoin and blockchain. APSA and Barclays in particular have got masses of people working on blockchain and Bitcoin, and FNB and RMB are starting to actively explore it. So we've seen the South African banks have been a little bit behind of the behind the curve in terms of the global banks. So when I attend conferences in London, you hear the global investment banks saying, totally sold on blockchain, totally understand Bitcoin. It's just a question of when we're going to invest heavily. South Africans have been a little bit behind the curve, but they're coming on board. So I think 2016 we're going to see a, a aggressive moves into Bitcoin and blockchain.
1: And just the last question from me, in terms of regulations, I mean, are you seeing any, any issues around that?
4: I actually am seeing that the regulators are starting to get their heads around it. So I think what's going to happen with Bitcoin and blockchain is that it's going to start – it's going to stop being anonymous. So I think what we're starting to see – I mean, there's only two countries in the world where it's banned, and that's Russia and North Korea. Um, in Kenya, it's not recognized. So it's not outlawed, but it's not recognized. The South African Reserve Bank has been engaging on it for three years. So I think what we're going to start to see is the successful pay- players in the Bitcoin and blockchain space are those players that actually identify the users of their wallets. So I think those players that actually fika their customers and say, we know who the owners of the Bitcoin wallets are, are they going to be the winners.
0: I'm going to jump in there. Uh, Doesn't that defeat the purpose of Bitcoin? And folks, this is exactly what we need you to do. I'm walking around uh, with a mic that's going to allow you to jump in at any point in this discussion, okay? So to your Fika point, doesn't that defeat the purpose of Bitcoin then if you were to essentially register your users?
4: So I think what's interesting is where Bitcoin started. Obviously, it was a fringe group. It was very anti-establishment, and that was what the purpose of it was. It was a a backlash against global financial crisis. It was a lot of anti-establishment users, and especially the early adopters of Bitcoin. If If you meet them, some people have made a lot of money. They're quite weird. If you start to see where it's transitioning,
0: Mitch Atagana says she uses Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Africa needs to hear that
5: I'm just an normal person who just likes
4: Bitcoin I mean just... I think. The but I do get it, a,
0: I do get a point I do yeah. have a a stereotypical image of yeah. Bitcoin users and uh, they don't look like you Mitch I'm sorry
4: <laughs> they were very anti-establishment and they were really saying this is an uprising against the world as we know it etc and what we're starting to see is that it's moving more mainstream and people are really recognizing the power of the technology and they're really recognizing that this could be a massively transformative technology for the financial services industry and I actually think if we can move it into a regulated space it's actually going to um, increase financial services access particularly for a continent like Africa and it's going to increase the efficiency of the financial services industry.
0: So for a former banker like you sir uh, Brandon, listening to this discussion uh, what sort of comes to mind and given the sort of investments you're in, your emphasis in ICT how excited are you about the blockchain and its applications? Yeah it's
3: interesting ideally we, we're actually seeing quite a lot of new uh, innovative uses of blockchain outside of cryptocurrencies and outside of kind of banking security. Uh, just last week, we were at AfricaCom, and uh, Innovus, which is the uh, sort of accelerator uh, uh, affiliated to Stellenbosch University, introduced us to a group of young guys who've created a blockchain chain tech that sits in the digital rights management world. Uh, and I think uh, blockchain as a security layer, you're going to see increasing use of it. Uh, across all sectors, frankly. And uh, d- to be honest, yeah, we, we through my chairman who you mentioned, Andy Leng we're deeply involved in the, the global conversation around internet governance. And it's an extraordinarily complex thing. Um, and obviously, these types of technologies play a very significant role uh, in that debate. But the, uh, so the ability of, of blockchain to create secure layer uh, transfer of information and documentation and curing some of these real ills of the internet. Yeah, IP theft is a massive problem. And uh, what was brilliant about these guys' idea is that it inverts the model. So what it does effectively is it, it, it turns the users against the suppliers. So that the, the providers for uh, ill-gotten gains of stolen movies or stolen music, uh, providing that to a consumer, it embeds into the consumer and actually rewards the consumer for whistleblowing on the provider. Um, So now those providers can't trust their own customer base, which is quite clever, I think.
1: Okay, cool. We'll come back to blockchain and Bitcoin discussions a bit later again. I want to come to you, Brandon. Obviously, I I think most of us wouldn't be here if it wasn't for connectivity. I think connectivity enables the technology industry and the technology economy. But throughout the year, we've seen some regulatory challenges across countries like Nigeria, even in South Africa in some cases, and sometimes even in Kenya, What do you think will, firstly, when are prices coming down in terms of connectivity? I know you don't deal at the user level, but you deal with service providers. And uh, what are you seeing as the hindrances by regulators and policymakers and the enablers that perhaps are helping you guys in your work?
3: Yeah, it's a very broad question, Teva. So, I mean, uh, you've got to start with the point that Joe made earlier, which is what is the current status of the infrastructure um, on the ground? Um, You know, through processes of, like a CECOM, uh, we very much find ourselves now as a continent well-served when it comes to international bandwidth. Uh, And those prices are coming down. I mean, they're they're coming down very, very rapidly. In fact, I mean, when we first launched CECOM, uh, an STM64 product, which is a 10-gig wavelength, was $99 million. Uh, That product today is $2 million. So, you know, you've seen a rapid... to
1: the service providers, just for the benefit of us. Think, this is to the service providers. Yeah, as a wholesale
3: product into yeah. the service providers. What we have found is there has been a lag effect in introducing lower prices on the back of those international prices coming off. But the the real exciting thing for us is that you've got about a 30% euro in your price decline in, in dollar terms in international bandwidth, but you've got about a 70% euro in your uptake in terms of demand for bandwidth, really demonstrating this latent demand that sits in the African continent. Yeah, so... What we're really trying to do is, I guess, address what we see as sort of the three evils um, in the domestic infrastructure, and Joe's touched on them as well, which is th- there is infrastructure out there, but it was architected for a 2G voice experience, which isn't great architecture, frankly, for a, a true data experience. So you've got networks, but these networks are, don't have enough reach. Uh, they are very expensive, and it's a poor user uh, experience. So what's going to happen is I think you're going to see more and more of this terrestrial fiber deployment that started happening. I mean, in the last five years, uh, the number of kilometers of terrestrial fiber across Africa has more than doubled. It's now a million kilometers of fiber. The challenge really is the easy stuff has been built, the kind of long-haul city-to-city stuff, the metro rings. It's getting that last-access fiber um, going, which is where I think is really going to ultimately drive prices down. Uh, Because once you can shake the deadlock of the former monopolistic owners of that lost connectivity into a home, and and that easy money starts falling out of the system, that's when the consumers are, are really going to start benefiting. I mean, our, our hypothesis right now is that, in terms of the trends and generally in, in telecommunications across Africa, is that, and I don't know if there's anyone here from the mobile operators. If you are, you should block your ears right now. <laughs> is that uh, the next decade is really going to be uh, the time for the consumer uh, and. Prices are going to come down, much more liberalisation in markets, much more friendly regulations. You're seeing what's happening in regulators across the board in Africa, how they're frankly beating up the operators when they're not compliant. Um, much more options around entertainment over the top services and all this competition that's happening. Ultimately, not everyone's going to win, of course. Uh, there are going to be losers in this mix. But the fact that huge amounts of investment is going in to developing fintech platforms, entertainment platforms, fiber-to-the-home initiatives, ultimately is going to benefit the consumer, even if some of those players fail. Um, so the consumer in the telco world, who since 1890 has been suffering under the uh, this monopolistic behavior
1: of a few, uh, is finally going to wrestle back a little bit of control. Interesting you mentioned the consumer, and actually brings on me on to the next question. Lately, there's been a cry out by CEOs of mobile service providers in South Africa, Vodacom's one, MTN is one, where they've said that OTT, over-the-top suppliers like WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, are eating their revenues. One, what's your views on that, or do you really care?
3: No, we don't. Uh, the, uh, it's, uh, I'm afraid it's uh, fighting against the inevitable, um, Yeah, there is is a degree of inherent unfairness that people have put massive amounts of capital at work to build networks, and then these over-the-top players can come along and and occupy those networks without a revenue share back to the network owner, but it is the way the world's going. There is this global net neutrality debate that's taking place. Ultimately, I think where that will land is I think that the big content owners, um, the Googles of the world, the Netflixes, they will participate in, A, they will participate in actual ownership of infrastructure, and we're seeing uh, Google do a lot of work in, in this Google Link project with kind of access fiber uh, and in this new Google Loon, the crazy balloons, which are great. Um, but not only investing in infrastructure, but actually coming up with models where they allow infrastructure owners to, to gain some benefit. Uh, in the US at the moment, I think the debate's gone the wrong way, I'll be honest. Yeah, I think they should allow content owners to buy fast-track routes to their consumers uh, on networks.
1: So you're for fast lanes and slow lanes? I,
3: I, I just think that, that it creates a, a fairness between network owners and content owners. That uh, that's a, It's a way of network owners being able to monetize their asset by providing some degree of, if you like, beneficial access. I don't think uh, that, that doesn't necessarily disturb completely the, the net neutrality debate, because I think... Uh, all content should find its way onto the Internet. It's more about allowing some prioritization. If a consumer is willing to pay more for a better service, the the global Internet world should allow that to happen.
0: Can I just hop in there? There Was Was there a hand? Was there a question? I I wanted to hop in there because something you mentioned, you mentioned Google Loon. There's obviously Facebook uh, putting drones up in the sky. How seriously do you consider projects like that as a threat to investments like yours in Things like CECOM. And um, do you see a regu- a regulation mo- uh, allowing them to become as important a part of delivering uh, internet to the last mile that you're struggling to reach? Yeah.
3: No, look, these initiatives are, are, are great because they are breaking down those price barriers. If you look at what Google Link has done in Uganda with the fiber that they've rolled out there, it's, it's made an, a tremendous change to the price of bandwidth in that market. Um, you know, uh, both Google and Facebook, frankly, and maybe I should disclose that we're in discussions with Google on both Link and uh, as local partners uh, with Luna as you well. You heard it here <laughs> first, <time>. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, it's, it's quite a responsible approach, we think. Um, they're not crowding out uh, people who where there's an opportunity for natural investment to take place. It's really an attempt to break down um, the cost barrier in those markets that most require it. Um, and uh, so I think it, uh, to, to that end, it should be encouraged. You know, I think where, where, the, where the challenge comes is that where there are content owners who are putting in investing in network where there's no profit motive on that network as a standalone consideration, that starts creating market schisms that are quite difficult to manage. But for now, we're not seeing that.
0: And Dominique, there's a huge... Well, this, 2015 has pretty much been... Uh, depending how you look at it, the year of uh, the emergence of uh, video on demand, um, certainly to some, uh, the year in which disruption of the traditional banking industry has certainly uh, you know, reached unprecedented levels. Uh, what are your thoughts in terms of the trends looking back on 2015 in terms of, uh, I mean, from the vantage point of sitting at a, pla- a place like an RMI, uh, at the same time um, overseeing uh, hopefully the next breed of startups and disruptors, so you you're in a sort of weird tension as it were. Like what are you noticing and what's your sort of your thoughts on 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 what you see?
4: So it's interesting because the the comment that you made the, the question that was asked about the OTT players in the um, mobile world is is very relevant for the financial services world because And I just for clarity, today, OTT
0: would be the the likes of WhatsApp, WhatsApp and and folks like that who are basically swooping in to enjoy hundreds of millions and billions of, of rands worth of infrastructure on the, you know, that, that um, they had nothing to do with, and they just swoop in and make the money. So you're saying that there there's sort of parallels between that and your experience?
4: Because the same thing is happening in the financial services industry. So if we look at it, there's $20 billion of investment capital that is going into the fintech industry. So we've identified over 1,500 fintech startups that are unbundling every part of the financial services value chain So they're coming in and attacking pieces of it. And they are taking advantage of the infrastructure that exists there. But the point is, is it's something that you can't stop. And the point is is that they wouldn't be getting traction if there wasn't a need in the market. So the point is is that I understand that the banks moan and the banks you know, cry and they say, well, we've invested in the regulatory expertise and we've, we've invested in the branch infrastructure and the ATM infrastructure, and it's not fair that someone can come in and ride on top of that. But the point is, is that my belief is that they've benefited from superior returns over the years and those superior returns have come at the expense of consumers. Wow. By an admission.
0: And,
4: <laughs> but it's true, <laughs> sure. right? Um, and I come out of a business that basically launched a massive attack on the banks. So that's my own personal belief. Um, and I think it is the age of consumers. I mean, what technology is allowing us to do is to develop next-generation financial services systems at a cost point that is mind-boggling. And the point is, is that the current banks in particular are not geared to deal with it. I mean, just to give you some stats, I mean, the things that frighten me a little bit, like – I mean, just just to give you a bit of context, I mean, the business that we launched, we were able to deliver an entire next-generation banking system for less than $10 million.
0: This is time, right? Yeah.
4: Okay. And we were able to do what, what one of the big banks in South Africa weren't able to do with 2 billion rand, right? So the orders of magnitude are just very different. And then I see things globally, like RBS and Lloyds Bank announces here that they're spending a billion pounds on their digital innovation. And I'm thinking... Well, what are you going to do with a billion pounds? (laughs) Because you've got guys that are out there that are able to rapidly deploy systems for less than $10 million that are going to eat your lunch. And you're just never going to recoup that. And the point is is that how they're going to get their returns on their one billion pounds, I can tell you where they're going to recoup it is from consumers. And consumers at some point are going to say, no more. And they're going to gravitate towards players who are offering them a better service and are doing it at a price point that makes sense.
1: Are there any questions?
0: Dude, the hand's popping up now (laughs) everywhere. Mitch, yours was up first.
5: Thank you. Um, So I I absolutely love fintech startups because I think Africa's biggest problem actually is money. Um, But what I'm quite interested in, and I kind of worked in the startup uh, ecosystem in Africa for a long time is I don't see a lot of financial inclusion stuff in South Africa. I barely see them. Uh, In East Africa there are tons of financial inclusion startups who are trying to find ways to kind of get to the majority of the population. So something like 227 for instance. 227 works for me because I can afford to have a decent device that can access it and play with it. But it doesn't work for the lady who's making three thousand a month and actually really needs something like twenty two seven because she can't use it. Mm-hmm. It's, she's got a what is that? That Samsung E two fifty. And but then there's not enough people thinking around financial inclusion. So as a person who's working within the fintech ecosystem, what are your thoughts around that?
4: Well, I come out of a business that was all around financial inclusion, and the business that we launched, Time, was around getting to the next level of financial inclusion. And the metrics that we worked on is that the large banks in South Africa, for them to acquire a customer, it costs around 280 rand, and to service that customer is around 2,500 rand when you do the fully absorbed costs of the system. So that's the branch cost. That's the cost of the SAP or the Hogan or whatever they're using, and the big head office and the executive salaries or whatever. And the system that we deployed, it was costing less than 100 rand a year. So when you're able to work on a platform like that and you don't have that legacy, we were able to offer free banking services. So the product that we rolled out, Mobile Money, offered free banking services. Um, And what we were able to do was open up a million bank accounts in nine months by working within regulatory innovation. And I think financial inclusion is incredibly important. And I think technology is enabling financial inclusion. And actually, we've got a real body of experts that are sitting in South Africa that are actively thinking about this. I think where we do have some challenges is that the construct of the South African financial services system is such that we've got a very closed system, we've got... Some dynamics that make it quite difficult for these businesses to break through, but we do see some phenomenal thinking happening, and actually, this is one of the best places to do it, because we've got some of the best financial services skills in the world here. I mean, you must bear in mind that South Africa consistently gets voted as one of the top ten regulated industries, right? Um, So I think we're going to see some phenomenal things here. And I think the learnings that we get here are relevant for the rest of Africa. So financial inclusion is a topic that's very close to my heart. And I think it's one of the things from an RMI perspective, we actively seek out businesses that are looking to commercially deliver services to people, to that next billion in Africa. And I'm a big believer that you have to find commercial solutions so that they're sustainable. And the beauty is, is that technology is enabling that. Technology and the rise of smartphones.
3: Challenges we're seeing as an investor in the, in the fintech space, and it's not consistent across different markets, is, is the regulatory approach. Um, uh, not only from a banking regulator, but also from a telco regulator. And the, pro- the, challenge, the problem it's causing is that the, uh, the difficulty of a, a young fintech startup for, in terms of the distribution and marketing cost has become such a huge element of the startup cost of that business. Mm. Whereas if they had access to either partnerships with banks or partnerships with mobile operators who have a natural distribution network, that works a lot better. The problem is, is that most of the mobile operators we speak to and most of the banks see these new product sets as a way to embed their own customer base rather than creating an open access platform. Uh, we tend to favor open access across everything we do because of the economies of scale that, that, that and how that benefits ultimately the end user cost. Um, so I think there's got to be a stronger dialogue around how do we break down some of those regulatory barriers to allow these startups to get access through banks into their underlying customers or through mobile operators to their underlying subscribers. Um, M-Pesa works so well in Kenya. Why? Because Safaricom is such a dominant operator. Mm. If it, has, it hasn't really worked in many other markets because where there are multiple operators who are not prepared to kind of share across them, uh, then you get a locked system that's not open access.
0: Isn't it also true, though? Uh, and I see your hands. I'm coming. Uh, there are three hands so far. Isn't it also true that um, part of the problem is leadership at a lot of these institutions at a very high level? Their KPIs are based on performance, uh, based on sweating existing or legacy businesses. So isn't that part of the problem? You, you become a CEO of a business, um, and the pressure is on you to turn the billions of rands that have been invested over the last 10 years into serious money, and you're not really as free to think about what what might happen if you reach someone, say, in the middle of the Sahara.
4: And it's the incumbent dilemma and in financial services is particularly entrenched because of the profitability of those businesses. And because from if you look at it from a South African perspective, if you look at the weighting of financials in the JSE We are very reliant on those financial services businesses to continue to be as profitable as they are. And I feel for the banking CEOs because they've got a big challenge. You know, they've got a very large big beast that they've got to continue operating. And their shareholders are hard on them. The market does not – in this country, the market does not reward massive innovation. And the market does not reward people going into aggressive J-curves. You know, to sort of help them come out the other side. And how do you as an executive sit there and say, I'm going to make a call that's going to co- cause a massive hole in my p for the next three years, but it's going to help this business survive in seven years' time? When I'm
0: not here anymore.
4: <laughs> when I'm not here anymore and I'm incentivized over the next few years. So these are parts of the dilemmas that have to be solved. And this is what technology is doing. And that's why I always say technology is no longer something that you say – Put it into the little tech department there and advise me. The dynamics of what the technology is doing is it's causing the dynamics of the entire business to change. And all the executives have to start getting their heads around because it's going to cause the businesses that they have today to not exist in five years' time.
0: Some hands now. Straight to the hands. Uh, your name, where you're from, and straight into your question. Thanks.
6: Uh, Brett Steingo from SDN Africa, Software Defined Networking. Um, so I want to go back to Brandon's point about uh, net neutrality. And I think, you know, obviously the, the, the sort of one side of the argument is that let's, let's go for a free market and allow consumers to pay for the services that they want to get, as you said. But the Internet at the moment is a natural monopoly in terms of it's not really in all our interest to, to, to facilitate the proliferation of multiple Internets or versions of the Internet. And because it's a natural monopoly, obviously, if you enter into a scenario like the one you're describing where the large uh, providers of content maintain the status quo by being able to dominate the Internet and the performance on the Internet, you create a barrier to entry which prevents any new content getting an equal chance on the Internet and new applications actually getting accessed on the Internet because their performance is always going to be inferior. And that's really the argument around net neutrality, and I'd like to understand your response to that.
3: Yeah, so, as I say, this is quite a complex debate, I guess, but the uh, the more infrastructure that gets built, the, the less this becomes uh, a challenge. Um, frankly, now that we've seen uh, how the, the global content owners are localizing their caching of content, yeah, for instance, here in South Africa or elsewhere on the continent, um, the cost of delivering that content becomes less and less. So the issue becomes one of if, uh, if these network owners stop investing in networks, then the internet falls over completely. So uh, to me, it, 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 there's not a simple solution to this, but there is an answer that lies to my mind with having open access network architecture that allows for, on a transparent way, everybody to access the, the internet, but for there to be different levels of service that are offered at different price points. Um, otherwise, uh, I, I fear that what one's going to see here, ultimately, um, you know, when, these, when these huge uh, content owners like Netflix start pushing massive content down these networks, uh, they're just going to fall over. And, uh, and someone's got to spend the money to, to upgrade, uplift, and do that. And operators are just not going to do it anymore. Yeah, so if you, you look at the challenge facing mobile operators across Africa as it stands, as I said earlier, they've already... Uh, they've already got the problem that their, their network architecture is old. It was architected for 2G and voice. They need to upgrade that. But the, and, and already you're starting to see the capex to revenue spend of these operators going through the roof. And that's before some of these big content owners start pushing content down these networks. And the economic model just is going to break because at a point in time, uh, the the spend that's required on upgrading of those old networks to high-throughput data-compliant networks without any additional revenue uh, because the revenue is going somewhere else. It just economically cannot work. There is a point where that model is going to break. And I think it's better that people accept that and try and find smart solutions to it rather than having an idealistic view of denying it.
2: Right. Thanks. Just a few observations, maybe just to, to agree quite... Name, so oh my name. Where are you from? <laughs> no, I'm. <am>, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Africa doesn't know <laughs> Tell Africa. My name is Musa Kalenga. I'm from Facebook, um, and I think I wanted to just agree with a lot of what Dominique said. And uh, my previous role was actually in in a bank working in the digital marketing department, which was frightening at, at least, but um, essentially banks don't reward. They were set up and designed um, around the fact that they never anticipated that the customer would be important. Um, and as a result, they, they reward um, adherence to regulation over actually doing what's right from a customer perspective. The reason why this comes to mind is I got an SMS a few days ago um, about the new NetBank website that's finally gone live, a project which I started four years ago when I started at that bank. Um, and the reason why it's taken four years to get right is that through the entire process, um, doing what was right was actually deprioritized over doing um, what was regulatory. And the second thing is that the infrastructure didn't allow for us to do what was right. So you've got 20, 30, 40-year-old technology, um, and you've got this new customer revolution that's happening. And although in boardrooms we have conversations around the right thing to do and how things things need to be responsive, et cetera, et cetera, um, there's actually a huge barrier from the actual infrastructure that, de- that is deployed in most banks. Um, the reality is that most of the conversations that we ended up having, which were standoff conversations, were you need to actually break everything and rebuild it again. And once again, the cost of doing that and um, managing the stakeholder expectation, et cetera, et cetera, um, is just something that nobody's willing to entertain. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is that the time uh, the time transaction happened just as I was about to leave Nedbank, funny enough, Um, And it blew my mind that an organization like Nedbank, who's literally probably 13 kilometers away from time, was not even aware of the existence of of a startup of that nature, which just gives you an understanding of how closed off Mm-hmm. Um, executives in banking are. a bank from Australia was able to identify that as a business they could invest in. Uh, meanwhile down the road in Santon or down the road in, in Bromfontein there's kind of every bank on this in this country and they actually didn't pick it up so it just gives you a sense of the, the state of mind of the executives but number two, I think the real challenge around infrastructure, you know, literally the systems are too broken to be fixed um, and you literally have to break everything
1: mm. There was a question over there It's
2: a great comment Please state your name, because
0: you, we didn't get the full name, and where you from in the, in the previous one.
5: Misha Atagana from Google. Uh, Musa, I'm very terrified that you said banks don't care about people, because I've banked with NetBank for 15 years, so it's <laughs> really scary right now. Just saying. Maybe I should start looking for a new bank. Um, Just so, so actually, Musa's kind of segued into what I want to talk about about banks not caring about the customer, and what you said earlier about regulatory system. and mentioned M-Pesa, which was my uh, question is Safaricom gets the credit for M-Pesa, but the Kenyan government should because if they didn't allow it, it wouldn't Mm -hmm. have happened. Which is why it doesn't work in South Africa or the parts of of the continent is governments and (laughs) regulators and lobbyists have made it their business to. Uh, stop thinking about what's best for the consumer. So when I look at the financial ecosystem, just the African general life ecosystem in general, the governments don't know how to think about people on an individual level. Mm. Businesses who try to think about people on an individual level end up getting screwed because big businesses made it their job to make sure that lobbyists look after their interests. So how do we solve that problem? How do we sit and say, okay government, without these people, with their taxpayers' money, you can't actually survive. Banks, without them spending 15 years with you and still not caring about them, you can't actually survive. How do we get them to actually start shifting the way they think and not taking four years to launch a simple website, essentially? Cool.
4: So, uh, quick,
5: uh,
1: quick comment before the answer and closing remarks. Don't you think comes successful and the government, uh, Kenyan government allowed it because there are shareholders in it? You don't have to answer that. <laughs>
4: Everyone wins The shared economy is a good thing The best example that I'm seeing of this, and it's an initiative that was launched this year in the UK. So the UK government has decided that they really want to make sure that London is seen as the centre of of financial services excellence. And they've realised that given that the UK economy has been struggling in a little bit of areas, they can become a fintech centre of excellence. And actually they're becoming the global leader in this. So what they've done is that the UK regulator has set up an innovation office which is extraordinary. And what the, what the UK regulator is doing is they're helping all these fintech startups understand the regulatory environment, helping them navigate through the regulatory hurdles and helping these fintech startups actually succeed. And I think that's an extraordinary approach because what the UK regulators decided to do is they've shifted for many years. They've been focused on protecting the economy And they've been focusing on sort of on the regulatory um, and the stability of the economy. And they've said they've done that at the expense of the consumer. So they've realized that what they need to do is they need to foster competition in the UK economy. And in order to to do that, they need to allow these fintech startups to thrive. So they're really allowing this entire little sub-economy to boom. And I think that's one of the guiding lights that a lot of the regulators can start to look at. Why I see that as, why I see great hope for Africa is a lot of our African regulators look to the UK for guidance. So I know, for example, the South African Reserve Bank looks to the UK regulator for guidance. So I think if we can get them engaged in some of these initiatives we can start to see some real progress being made in the financial services space. So I think it's fantastic and I think we're going to start seeing more of that because the regulators globally are starting to see that they need to enable consumer interests as opposed to just protecting the interests of of big business or protecting just the interests of the of the you know sort of stability of the financial services system.
1: Okay. Closing remarks from you, Brendan?
3: Yeah, so probably a bit off the fintech point because I'm no expert on that I'm afraid, but the uh, back to your point, Tefa, around kind of reducing costs to the end user, we've seen, uh, we've spoken also quite a bit about fibre. We're also seeing a hell of a lot of really exciting stuff happening in the wireless space, and the African continent will remain wireless dependent to a large extent. So, what's interesting about this is that uh, the ability to deploy low-cost wireless rapidly and and give end users very close to fiber-like um, uh, experiences is, is, is something that we increasingly see coming across our data. Just
1: for clarification, wireless, are you talking mobile or are you talking Wi-Fi? Various.
3: So obviously there's this new catchphrase, carrier-grade Wi-Fi. Joe touched on Wi-Fi. So frankly, we, we think that ultimately mobile data will be best served on a Wi-Fi platform and Wi-Fi is going to become pretty much ubiquitous. Uh, but more at the fiber replacement end. So we're seeing de- uh, deployments of networks using very high microwave but in licensed bands so you can give a a guaranteed quality of service to the end user Um, or in uh, an old technology that's coming back into kind of the fore, more in this kind of free space optics or so-called LIFA using very rapid flickering uh, uh, light technology. All of these things are really exciting and to the extent that they bring the cost of networks down um, and uh, ultimately uh, maybe take away some of the uh, the issues around the cost of fiber deployment and, uh, and the need for uh, us to visit this net neutrality debate, yeah, I think that's a great and encouraging thing. And uh, what, what's great about it is that we're seeing the African continent once again being a leader in the use of these technologies um, and, and stuff that could ultimately be world-beating.
1: Thank you to you. Just a reminder, our panelists will be leaving, but you'll have about 10, 15 minutes during the next break to interact with them, grab coffee, grab a drink before they leave. Thank you, and a round of applause for them. A nice strong one, Joe Berg. Yes, now. And with that... We'd like to say a special thank you to Dominique Coletantolique and Brendan Duel for their candor and generosity when they shared their experiences and perspectives on this episode.
0: And of course, we'd uh, like to thank Opera for helping us do more and partnering with us to bring you the insights we shared today. Uh, do join us again next week to listen in on a panel discussion I facilitated, covering some of the highlights from Africa's startup scene in 2015. And uh, the conversation features the head of communications and public affairs at Google South Africa, Mitch Adagana, as well as entrepreneur magazine columnist and co-founder of the startup Lexno Andrew Taylor you do not want to miss that one
1: definitely don't want to miss it till next time it's happy holidays from myself Diffo mm-hmm. Mohapi
0: as well as me Andy Lemassugo have a smashing week
1: cheers guys